0: Greenie with Mike Greenberg, the podcast.
1: Yes, it is. Greeny back and better than ever presented by Progressive Insurance. Our guests like Zach Lowe in a second on the Shell Pennzoil performance line. What a night. What a shot. The finishes in the NBA playoffs have been unbelievable. After we saw what happened with Houston and a James Harden block. And then the incredible finish back and forth and back again with Utah and Denver. And then last night, Toronto with an absolute miracle. Let's talk about what that meant and whether or not they can still win and any number of other things with one of my absolute favorites. He's the host of the Low Post podcast. There isn't anyone I prefer talking basketball with than my friend Zach Lowe. So, Zach, let's start by talking about the play. I am um, more than capable of making a list of almost anything. I love lists. If, if, the, if the Raptors go on to make a deep playoff run, uh, let's say they make it back to the NBA finals. What are we going to say about that shot that won that game last night and kept them alive?
2: It's it's not quite the Kawhi four bouncer which was, you know, you're you're going to overtime or or you win a playoff series right off the bat. But it's it's as big of a swing shot ever, but it's funny how it's funny how like future events dictate how we think about the past. Like if Boston wins the next two, it's a nice fond memory and we all move on. If Toronto finds a way to win this series, he saved their season. That's it. I mean, that's about it, 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 That's the difference between your season is over and you have a 40% chance to win the series now or whatever it is. That's a huge difference.
1: That's a huge swing. Absolutely. And the degree of difficulty of it has to factor in somewhere. So I get that the Kawhi shot is a very tough shot, and the dramatic arc of watching it bounce on the rim as many times as it did was fun. But when you consider the things that had to go right on that play, for Kyle Lowry, who... there's no way he's six feet tall and he has, he has taco fall standing in front of him. Who's closer (laughs) to eight feet tall than he is to seven feet tall. And I mean that literally he is closer to eight feet than he is to seven feet. And then he's got to throw a pass 55 feet to hit OJ Ananobi in a place in his hands that he can just immediately take the shot because there's only 0.5 seconds left. The degree of difficulty of that play has got to be up there with practically any we've ever seen.
2: No, it's one of the great, it might be the greatest inbound pass of all time. It's certainly one of them. It's one of the greatest postseason last second passes of all time. And like you said, if it's three inches to the left, three inches low, three inches high, the Raptor season is over. And I just want, these guys are so good. Like Greeny, if you gave me a hundred chances to make that pass, <laughs> I might make it that accurate one time. I wonder how many times Kyle could do that. If he gave a hundred chances, how many times is he hitting over Taco Fall? Right in the shooting pocket, perfect arc, perfect velocity. I wonder if, are they that
1: good they could do that 50 times, 20 times? I have no idea. It was perfect. It's a great point. If you think about the great passes in basketball history, I always think of Grant Hill throwing that pass to Christian Leitner in the NCAA tournament that year when Leitner hits the shot to beat Kentucky. This is a a greater degree of difficulty in in the scheme of things probably than that, um, what do you think? Would you have a better chance if if i had put you where Lowry was or where Ananobi was? Would you have a better chance of making the pass or of making the shot in point five seconds? I think
2: making the shot. Let, let's be clear, low odds proposition. Like we might, it might be twenty four hours straight of trying to do either <laughs> one of those things. But I I feel like I could get luckier on like if I'm bracing myself for the pass to come and I can get my shooting motion ready. I feel like I can get luckier faster on that than throwing over a human being the size of which I have never seen before in my life.
1: (laughs) I'm with you. I think I would also do that. So that sets up a game for tomorrow night. That'll be on ESPN radio Raptors and Celtics. It's presented by indeed coverage begins at six Eastern on ESPN radio and the ESPN app. That game becomes a whole lot more interesting because the Raptors have got to feel like they have a new life and the Celtics have got to feel like they had this one completely in control and let it get away. I'll be very interested to see what the hangover effect is or whatever the carryover effect is for both teams. What do you expect?
2: Well, the Raptors are a confident team, totally comfortable in their own skin. They are not the kind of team I would want to give a second life to when I've got them almost dead. To me, I'm going to watch Siakam. If Siakam can't get going and Jalen Brown is really giving him problems, I just don't think Toronto is going to be able to score enough. I mean, Fred VanVleet and Kyle Lowry had to work so hard for 56 points last night. I, I think they need more from Pascal. And for Boston, I think their their offense has been good when they've started when they've gotten off the ball early when they start those chain passing sequences that get Toronto moving. I thought they got away from that a little bit last night. If they can get back to that, I still like Boston to win the series.
1: Greeny and Zach Lowe with you. were presented by Progressive's Home Insurance. Get your quote at progressive.com today. I want to jump around with you a little bit. I asked you this question on Get Up this morning. Um, Steve Nash named the coach of Brooklyn yesterday in in a surprise. Um, I think it was surprising for a lot of different reasons. But with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, if those two are healthy, plus what they have there in Lavert and some of the others, and what we all think is an unspectacular Eastern Conference, I think there's extraordinary pressure on Nash because I think anything short of the NBA Finals next year becomes a disappointment for the Nets and the kind of thing you start pointing at the coach and saying he should have done better than this. What do you think?
2: I mean, I think there's pressure on everybody, but I I agree with you. Look, there's a lot of ifs between now and and the end of next season, right? You know, people could get injured and all of that, but if they're healthy and Kevin Durant is 90% of what he was before the Achilles tear, 95%. Absolutely, they'll be under pressure to make the finals. We don't know what's going on in Philadelphia now. Boston is rising. They'll be there. Toronto, we'll see how many, you know, Fred Van Vliet's a free agent. Uh, Miami's rising. Milwaukee's flailing about right now. We just don't know. The, East, the top of the East is pretty good, but we'll see how these teams look. But Kyrie, Kevin Durant, we'll see with Joe Harris. He's an important part of their team. Jared Allen's a rising center. They have a big Levert decision, you know, to keep him or trade him and all that. But they've, they've got a lot of talent there, and those two guys, they didn't come there to lose
1: in the second round of the playoffs. That's exactly right. I, I'll be watching that, and I'll be watching it with great interest. And, and it is, you know, it's a roll of the dice, but I think a, an interesting one. And I, if I had to bet on it, I would bet a good one in Steve Nash, knowing him the little bit that I do. As I say, jumping around, you have a piece about James Harden and how this series against the Lakers is an opportunity for him to rewrite his postseason legacy. Give anyone who hasn't read it yet a, a, a sense of what it is you're thinking and tell me what you're expecting him to do.
2: I just, you know, when you talk about a player of James Harden's stature, he's about to make his, I think, sixth first-team All-NBA in seven years. He's going to go down as the, maybe the top three scorer of all time in NBA history. Like, close your eyes and think to yourself, what moment do you remember in the playoffs from him? And I think you remember a shot in Oklahoma City to beat the Spurs eight years ago and a block shot against Lugens Dort that redeemed what was about to be a terrible game for James Harden. And if they lose, it's a catastrophe. And in between, there are good games and bad games. But in every high moment, high-stakes game, you just don't remember a moment where you thought, he's taking the game by the throat. This is his game. He's got this. In, in fact, often the, off, the, the other thing happens, and he doesn't you know show up as much as you'd like him to. I think the Lakers are beatable. I don't necessarily think the Rockets are the team to do it because I don't think they looked very good for the last three and a half games against Oklahoma City. They just were lucky to escape. But I think the Lakers are vulnerable if if the Rockets show up and shoot well and if James Harden has a monster series. And if he does, that changes, I think, the legacy, the the career arc that he has going.
1: If he beats LeBron. Because right now everything in the world is hanging in the balance there, right? Like they would change the coach and, and they might change the whole small ball concept and everything else had they lost the previous series. So we'll see Speaking of the Clippers and the Lakers and and I I think everything sort of leads that way. We have seen them as being on a collision course for the conference final essentially since last summer, assuming that you still see it that way. And the Clippers killed Denver last night. And and I, I like you just said, you think the Lakers will beat the Rockets. Who do you like now? Having seen what we've seen to this point, who do you like right now in the West of the two LA teams?
2: I have The Clippers were my pick to win the title before the season. I've not reconsidered that once. I think they're the best team. Um, getting Beverly back healthy was huge for them. You could see it last night. Montrez-Harrell is starting to get rolling again. Zubas has made a little bit of a leap. Uh, the Lakers are really good. I just think the Clippers are a little bit better. And Kawhi is out there. Kawhi's out there like he's in an empty gym just practicing pull-up jumpers. It's just ridiculous how easy this is for him.
1: And one more for you here, Zach Lowe, and I appreciate it. We're presented by Progressive Insurance, and Zach is on the Shell Pennzoil performance line. John Morant wins Rookie of the Year yesterday. He got all but one first-place vote. Zion Williamson got the other, even though he wound up finishing third. And so I would ask you the question, taking star power, magnetism, TV ratings, box office, all of that stuff out of the equation, But if your sole objective is to win as many basketball games and championships as you can over the next decade, if I told you that you could redo that draft, would you take John Morant over Zion?
2: I'm still taking Zion unless the medical reports that I get are so bad that I'm nervous about year five and beyond with him. I I love Morant. I'd be thrilled to have either of them. I get why some people would lean Morant after the first year. I just think we're just scratching the surface of what Zion can be if he gets in shape and he gets healthier. Defensively, he has a long way to go. But a guy who can get to the rim like that can play any position on offense, can start anywhere on the court, and can pass, and is at the bucket before you blink an eye. You can build a lot of things around that. You can build a lot of things around John Morant, but what Zion can do on offense is unique, and uh, I'm still going Zion.
1: So let me ask a big question. there's nothing I love doing more than trying to convince people to agree with me on one of my ridiculous, controversial takes. So here's taking the injury part and putting it aside, because that sort of speaks for itself. We're sitting and watching Giannis Antetokounmpo trying to lead a team, and, and we're trying to sort of get in the middle of fights that Richard Jefferson is, is creating, because he's, he's saying essentially that Giannis is not a person that at the end of the game is going to have the ball in his hands in a position to score without other things happening. And do we live now at a time, Zach, where the guy who has the ball in his hands all the time has unprecedented value? So a guy like Luka Doncic, all of a sudden you'd rather have than Giannis, whereas throughout the entire history of the game, that would never have been the way you look. And a guy like John Morant, who you can give him the ball 94 feet away from the basket and he can do anything he wants with it, has a value in the game leading going forward that maybe a guy even as spectacularly athletic as Zion Williamson doesn't have?
2: The one counter I would have there, and I do th- what you're really talking about is a jump shot, right? Like if, if Zion's jump shot never develops and John Morant becomes a better three-point shooter who can hurt you from all levels, I mean, that's really what you're saying. The one counter I would say is Luka Doncic, LeBron, Kawhi Leonard, Kevin Durant, these dudes are six, seven, and up, and huge, and they cannot be physically overwhelmed by any defender that can actually stay with them speed-wise. John Morant is going to John Morant's a little bigger than Chris Paul and all that, but he's going to face the point guard problem eventually. Where in crunch time, the other team's going to put Kawhi Leonard or the next generation of Kawhi Leonard on him, and all of a sudden there's going to be arms and hands all over him, and he's going to have to figure that out. So I, I would, I get your point. I just think there is a difference between even Trey Young and John Morant. There's a difference between those guys and sort of the apex predator wing types that you're really talking about.
1: He's host of the Low Post podcast, and he's as much fun to talk to about basketball as anyone I know. Zach, thank you. Have a great weekend. I'll see you next week.
2: You too, Greeny. Thanks.
1: All right, that's Zach Lowe with me here. There's one other thing I wanted to say all the way back to the beginning of this conversation, that something that happened in that play last night the play between Toronto and Boston where they make the miracle pass and the, and the miracle shot, and it keeps them alive. And I, Look, I don't really have a huge rooting interest in that series. I picked Boston, so I'm sort of rooting for them because I'm rooting for myself to be right. But I, I, don't, I don't really care one way or the other that much. But I was listening to some of the post-game interviews, and Nick Nurse, who I think is a terrific coach in Toronto, said that the play they ran – was inspired by a series of CDs that he once watched. CDs, or maybe they were DVDs. Excuse me, they weren't. See, they probably weren't audio. (laughs) They were DVDs. Excuse me. I'm going back even further. A series of DVDs that he watched something like 20 years ago that were created by Hubie Brown, the legendary Hubie Brown, and that that play that, that he diagrammed there, the play he drew up to run in half a second to make a basket, and what what, you know was one of the great plays that you will ever see was a play that he took from Hubie Brown. And it it reminded me that I should remind you that I love Hubie Brown. Hubie Brown is one of my favorite people. The fact that I've gotten to know him a little bit as my life has gone on is one of the great thrills that I can describe to you of of my career. Because when I was a kid, anything I think I know about basketball— I learned from Hubie Brown, and I'll tell you how. In the early 80s, Hubie Brown was the coach of some pretty good Knicks teams. Those Knicks, they had, this was was right at the time that Larry Bird owned the Eastern Conference and Magic Johnson owned the West. And the Celtics were just too good to beat. But the Knicks gave them some battles in those days, and I loved them. I loved the Knicks like I, I can't even begin to tell you. And those Knicks had Bernard King, and they had um, Bill Cartwright, and they had Truck Robinson, and they had uh, uh, Marvin Webster, and Louis Orr, and Ernie Grunfeld. I could go on forever. But the point of it is this, that in those days, in the early 80s, you could go, walk up to the ticket window at Madison Square Garden, 10 minutes before tip, and for $6, $6, you could buy a seat in what they used to call the Blue Heaven. So or the blue seats all the way upstairs, the, the worst seats in the house at Madison Square Garden. So my friends and I went to practically every home game. I would have been in high school at this time. So my friends and my little brother and me, we would go to the games. For six bucks, you would buy a seat and you'd sit up there. And we never watched the first quarter. All we did in the first quarter was study what seats were open behind the Knicks bench. Because at the end of the first quarter, if you went directly to those seats, the ushers wouldn't chase us. We were kids and they just left us alone. So for $6, we sat in seats that today cost thousands per seat, thousands of dollars. And there would be four or five of us. I was probably 15 or 16. My brother's four years younger than me. So he was 11 or 12, a bunch of my friends. And we would go to these games and we would sit right behind the Nick bench. And I would listen to Hubie Brown coach. And we were close enough. You could hear every word. I would hear the things he was yelling at the players when he was calling out offense and calling out defense, and you could almost hear a little bit of the timeouts. And he had legendary assistants, by the way. Over the course of the years, his assistants included Rick Pitino, Richie Adubato, Mike Fratello, all of whom went on to varying levels of great success. Obviously, Pitino's in the Hall of Fame. And so I would listen to him, and, and so I grew to love Hubie. I've always loved him, and I love the way he talks. I, he became, Then he became an announcer, and I think he's – I learned more listening to Hubie Brown talk today than, than you hear, I think, from almost anyone doing games in any sport on TV. So it just occurred to me that probably a lot of people listening to me right now that have never heard me say that before. I used to talk about it on Mike and Mike every now and again. I haven't really had a chance to do it on Get Up, but I love Hubie. And so it gave me a particularly nice, warm place in my heart when I heard Nick Nurse say he took that play from Hubie Brown. Made me feel good. Um, and, and I hope that, that Hubie, we tried to call him today. We haven't been able to get a hold of him. I'd like to get him on. But I hope he felt good about that because he is an icon and a legend and was as good, about as good a coach as you could be. Now, the other big story today is Adrian Peterson being released in Washington, and there is no question he will get signed somewhere. He he says he's not done, and he probably isn't. He's 35 years old. But in the last two years in Washington combined, he ran for almost 2,000 yards. He is still an effective first and second down back. At minimum, when there's an injury somewhere, he'll get signed. And maybe he'll get signed even before that. But it got me to thinking, he's fifth on the all-time rushing list. Where does Adrian Peterson rank right now? And I don't know that anything he's going to do between now and the rest of his career is probably going to markedly change his historical place. Where is he on the list of the greatest running backs ever? There are four who have rushed for more yards than him in history. Emmett Smith, Walter Payton, Frank Gore, Barry Sanders. Of those, I would put Emmett Smith, Walter Payton, and Barry Sanders ahead of Adrian Peterson on the list of all-time great running backs. Looking down the rest of the list, Ladanian Tomlinson, it's very tough to say. Curtis Martin, Eric Dickerson. Then you get to Jim Brown. Jim Brown is 11th on the all-time rushing yards list. No way in the world is Adrian Peterson a better player than Jim Brown. Jim Brown is probably the greatest running back that ever lived. I'm not old enough to have seen him, but I think, I think to put any running back ahead of Jim Brown on the all-time list is probably a mistake, and I'm certainly not putting him any lower than that. So I'm putting him ahead of Adrian Peterson. So that's four. So is Adrian Peterson, the fifth best running back of all time? Is he top five? Or do you put some of these other guys ahead of him? I'm just throwing names out that are on the list here amongst the most productive runners of all time, just in total yards, LaDainian Tomlinson, Jerome Bettis, Curtis Martin, Edgerrin James, Marcus Allen, Marcus Allen was awfully good. Thurman Thomas was also a great receiver. John Riggins. I loved as a kid. OJ Simpson was An extraordinarily great player. People were tweeting me "Gail Sayers. He just didn't do it long enough. And then the other one um, that a lot of people are bringing up is I I just wanted to acknowledge it because I see it. I saw some people saying that I'm only not mentioning Larry Zonka because I don't like the Dolphins. (laughs) I want to give him his due. Larry Zonka was an awesome player. He's not one of the five greatest running backs of all time as much as I respect him. So keep those coming. Hashtag Greeny with a Y. Hashtag Greeny. Let me hear from you. And you tell me where you think he belongs on the all-time list of the greatest backs.
0: Greeny, the podcast.
1: Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for mom easy this year. Head to Macy's.com slash today. That's Macy's.com slash For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call, clickgrainger.com, or just stop by. Greeny with you, presented by Progressive's Home Insurance. Get your quote at progressive.com today. I love seeing all the tweets. Please keep tweeting. Just use the hashtag Greeny, and I will find them, and I will read them here. And I'm looking through some of the reaction to some of the different things that we're talking about. People wishing me luck in my fantasy draft tonight. That's fun. Thank you very much. A lot of people are also reminding me, and I would totally agree with this. When you talk about the greatest running backs in NFL history, You have to take into account, as you do with any other athlete, how long they did it. So Sandy Koufax can never be considered the greatest pitcher of all time, even though when he was at his best, he may have been the best because he just didn't do it long enough. And there's three running backs I would put in that category as NFL players. OJ Simpson, Gale Sayers, and Bo Jackson. In all of my life watching football, I would say the best running back I ever saw was Walter Payton. Barry Sanders would be very close. But that doesn't include Bo Jackson. If Bo Jackson had been healthy and had only played football, he would have been the best. And if you're old enough to have seen Bo Jackson, then you know what I mean. Bo Jackson was as good as anybody's ever been at anything. Bo Jackson was a terrific baseball player. Terrific. I covered Bo, actually, as a a member of the White Sox. I have two great Bo Jackson stories. They used one of them in the Bo Jackson 30 for 30, and they didn't use the other. They used the one that was complimentary. They didn't use the one that was less complimentary. That, I, don't, I, that's not, I don't think they chose them that way. Maybe that's just how interesting they found the two of them. What I'm saying is I saw sort of the, the pluses and the minuses with Bo, but there was no minus with him as a player. He was ridiculous, and if he had stayed healthy, he would have been that good. O.J. was ridiculously good. A lot of people are pointing out Earl Campbell. Earl Campbell was that good, too. Um, he just got beaten down. His style of play was he's just you couldn't do that for long because he just ran over people, and they hit him, and that just isn't going to last that long. One way or another, if you're just joining me, the reason we're having this conversation is because Adrian Peterson got released today, and I believe he will play again. But I think his place in the game's history is probably pretty well set. Wherever it is he is now, that's pretty much where he's going to wind up. So the question is, where is he on the list of the greatest runners of all time in NFL history? He he belongs in the discussion. He he deserves a conversation like this upon the end of his career. That said, he's, he's not in my top five. I'm debating whether or not he's in the top 10. I'm hearing from you again. Use the hashtag Greeny. And we will talk about it and see what you think. You can also download the DraftKings app and use my name, Greeny, as the code, and you will get a free shot at millions of dollars up for grabs this week with your first deposit. Minimum $5 deposit is required. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. The question of fairness in sports is an interesting one. Sports are supposed to be fair in theory. The idea is everyone should have the same chance. And then the winner will exclusively be determined by who performs the best, by who executes the best. So one of the things that used to insult my sensibility when it came to baseball, the fact that different teams could spend different different amounts of money on players didn't seem right because it seemed that was such an unfair competitive advantage. My opinions on that have changed over the course of time, but I used to see it that way. There's two other places where I find myself thinking about that. I'm I'm very amused by the conversations I'm hearing amongst NFL head coaches who are complaining that some teams are going to get to have fans in the stands and others are not and that this creates an unfair competitive advantage. And all I'll say of that is that complaint is very on brand. Very on brand for NFL coaches. I'm not mad at them for saying it. It's ridiculous. But I'm not mad at them for saying it. If you really think about it, what they're saying is during a pandemic, something that happens once every hundred years, when we are doing everything in our power to replicate some semblance of normalcy in our lives, that because there are some places that no fans can go to, we shouldn't allow any anywhere because it might create an unfair competitive advantage. Again, it's very on brand to complain about. And I'm, I like it. I'm here for it. I I like that they feel that way. I would expect nothing less and I would want nothing less from someone whose life is completely consumed with winning these games. And that's how I want them. I want NFL coaches completely consumed with winning these games. So I have no problem with that complaint. Ludicrous. Though I find it, it also brings up the interesting question about college football, and I have found this a fascinating topic going all the way back to the beginning of the pandemic. And it took an interesting turn yesterday. I don't know how much of this you've seen. We covered it a lot on Get Up this morning with the exceptional Heather Dinich, who's as good a reporter as we have. And so, the, in the in the Pac-12. They've come up with a machine. They have a machine now where they can do almost instant coronavirus testing, which is to say that a player could walk up to this machine. I I, I think you literally put your thumb on it or something. I don't know. I could see the video. I'm not exactly sure how they do the test, but for the purposes of this discussion, that doesn't really matter. You can get the test done. Then you can go in and like change into your uniform, whatever it is that you wear to practice. And by the time you would take the field, they'll have a result. And that way, you really you greatly minimize the chance of one player infecting many others. That's a huge step. People don't realize that the single biggest issue in uh, athletics and, and being able to play sports involves testing. And, and so this has opened up the possibility that the, the schools in the Pac-12 might start to play sooner than they had originally anticipated. Now, they can't in California and Oregon right now. They can't even go inside. The players can't go into the weight rooms, they can't do things like that. You all know that if you're listening to me there. But maybe that will change soon, and maybe they'll start to play. And so the Pac 12 and the Big 10, both of whom have delayed everything, they may join forces and they may play their own little season, the two of them. And create some sort of their own championship game like the Rose Bowl because they have played the Rose Bowl those two conferences against each other forever and maybe they'll do that and that would be interesting to see I don't know if that's what will wind up happening but they could and then it occurs to me that I was looking through all of this and I see one tweet in here which I've lost I'd like to give credit to who it came from But I, so I'll try and find who it was because I want to call out the person who did it because it's a good tweet, but this one person tweeted at me. Well, if these conferences are going to start in a couple of months, why wouldn't the other ones wait for them? Why wouldn't you wait? And then we could have a real season and everyone could play each other. And that reminds me of the same argument of, well, shouldn't everyone have the same amount of money? Shouldn't we all be on the same playing field? Dabo Sweeney gave you the exact answer you would expect the coach of Clemson when he said, oh, I think it's great that they get to play, but we're not waiting. We're ready to go. That's what I expect the coach to say. That's exactly the same mentality, and I'm not critical of it. It's the same mentality that the coach of the NFL team, I think it was Mike Zimmer and Sean McDermott, have when they say, well, if we can't have fans in our stadium, they can't have fans in their stadium because that's an unfair advantage. We're now at a disadvantage because these guys are judged exclusively on wins and losses. Sean McDermott and Mike Zimmer need to win games and trying to win championships and all the rest of that. So this, I I would not expect anything different. But the answer to that very well-meaning tweet, which I really liked, was that's just not the way the world works. These other conferences are going to go on because it is much better for them to play now than it is to play into the winter for a number of reasons, one of them being the bird in the hand factor, the other being, you don't want to be playing in January and February because, A, you're up against the NFL playoffs in the Super Bowl, and, B, a lot of your best players aren't going to play because they're not going to take a chance on getting hurt before the draft. So it, it's an interesting question. I love the, the idea behind thinking, well, that why shouldn't they all just wait and all play together? And the unfortunate answer is that's just kind of not the way it works in sports. Maybe it should, but it doesn't, and it isn't ever going to. All right, I'll take a short break. I'll come back. We will talk about my fantasy draft, which is tonight. I need a little help. I need a little advice. We will get to that. And then you will hear from Big Perk, who has put all the pressure in the world on someone who has absolutely no experience. You'll hear who next. I'm Greeny. This is ESPN Radio.
0: Greeny, the podcast. Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jets pizza. Better because it has to be. All right, Greeny, as we head into a holiday weekend, you can
1: tune in for a National League Central Rivalry Sunday. Cubs host the Cardinals, presented by GEICO. Sunday night baseball begins at 6 Eastern on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and at 7 Eastern on ESPN TV. You know, what else is going on this weekend is the Tour Championship, the last event of last year. I don't know how to phrase it anymore. The last event of this year's uh, golf season. We still have the U.S. Open and the Masters to come, but those will count as part of next season. So next year, we'll have two Masters and two U.S. Opens. But this year, they're on the course now at East Lake. This is the tournament that Tiger won um no, no, Tiger won that two years ago. Excuse me. Last year, McIlroy won and won 15 million bucks. McElroy's playing again. He's actually playing great. He's just started today. And you may have seen it. Roy McIlroy, his wife had a baby in the middle of this week in Jupiter, Florida. Now he's in Atlanta playing in the golf event. He had talked about not playing. There's 15 million bucks up for grabs, but it was their first child. They had a daughter. So he's there. Congratulations to him. Dustin Johnson is goes into the event with the lead because he's number one. In the standings, and they will play through to Monday. So a lot of golf to watch this weekend, and I insist we talk about golf on this program. And that is brought to you by DraftKings, America's top-rated daily fantasy app. I saw a tweet here that I love, and this is from Don, um, who writes: I was talking about how I sat behind the Nick Bench as a kid for six bucks and listened to Hubie Brown coaching, and he writes, Greeny. So you learned a lot sitting near the Knicks bench when Hubie was coaching. You forgot to mention that included using the F word as a noun, verb, adjective, and adverb. 100% correct. (laughs) That is 100% correct, Don. There was profanity. My my 15-year-old ears were not offended, but there was definitely profanity. The most profane coach I ever heard, by the way, by far, and it wasn't even close, was Gary Williams. And anyone who's ever sat close enough to hear Gary Williams coach a basketball game is nodding their head right now. When I went to Northwestern, the Northwestern student section was directly behind the visitor's bench, and I went to every basketball game. And we had legendary coaches in the Big Ten at that time, including Bob Knight, Lou Henson, who just died recently, uh, Gene Cady was coaching then, Judd Heathcote, huge names. And Gary Williams was the coach of Ohio State. And I would listen to him coach. He would sit, sweat through his suit before the first TV timeout. And that guy, you want to talk about profane. That guy was profane. Made Hubie seem like a shrinking violet. Uh, Tonight is my fantasy draft. I just found out I have the second pick in the draft. So do I assume I'm taking Saquon Barkley? Is that right? For those of you who are more experienced fantasy players than I, I assume I'm taking Saquon. I'm assuming Christian McCaffrey is going to go one. If McCaffrey is on the board by some accident, I'll take him. But assuming not, is Saquon the right choice at number two? I think he is. So I think I'm going to take Saquon Barkley in my fantasy draft tonight. And then one more thing I wanted you to hear before we wrap up for the week. I told you that I believe that anything short of making the NBA Finals this coming year will be a disappointment for Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and the Brooklyn Nets, which is why hiring a first-time head coach with no experience at all in Steve Nash adds a little bit of risk to what is already a bit of a roll of the dice. I brought that thought up this morning to Kendrick Perkins on Get Up. And Big Perk basically told me I wasn't taking it far enough. He said, Greeny, anything short of a championship this year is a do- disappointment. Here's Big Perk.
2: I don't care if this Steve Nash first time coaching and he has no experience. You have two of the top ten players, when healthy, on your basketball team. It's the same expectations as anyone else. It is championship or bust.
1: I think he's right. I, I think he's pretty close to right, at least. There should be very good teams in the West. And I actually found myself thinking, as he was saying that this morning, of the delicious possibilities that exist. If the Nets make the finals next year, which of these two scenarios is the more delicious possibility? That you have Kyrie playing against LeBron for the championship, or that you have Durant playing against the Warriors for the championship? Which of those is better? The single best scenario you could get anywhere in sports right now is Tom Brady and the Bucs against Bill Belichick and the Patriots in the Super Bowl. That's number one. That's so far and away number one that nothing is number two. So then let's argue over what would be number three. I think Kyrie against LeBron, which would be Nets-Lakers in the finals next year, would be extraordinary. But don't overlook the Warriors. They have the second pick in the draft, which they can trade for something of significant value. They're going to get, in theory, they're going to get everybody back healthy, particularly Clay. So they'll have Steph and Clay and Draymond and uh, the the kid from Minnesota and 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 they have whatever they can do with the second pick. Wiggins is the name I'm thinking of, and and whatever they're going to do with the second pick, which I think they'll probably turn into a veteran. So the Warriors could be right back in the mix pretty quickly, and of course the Clippers aren't going away, and who knows who else may be good, but there'd be nothing incredibly juicy and dramatic and, and delicious about those possibilities. But LeBron against Kyrie would be incredibly good. But I think the best one would be Durant against the Warriors because that the, the, the psychological dynamic of Durant and the Warriors in every way, from the minute that on July 4th of whatever year it was, he chose to go there in the Hamptons, from that moment until... His, his, his Achilles popped last year in the finals, the psychology of all of that was fascinating to me. And I think of all the possibilities that could take place in the NBA, the most, the most dramatic would be that I'm not suggesting it's the most likely, but it's the most dramatic. Meanwhile, we'll see what drama the NBA playoffs give us over this weekend, plus the baseball, plus the hockey, plus the golf and a whole lot more. It should be terrific. I will be on Get Up on Monday morning, so I will see you then. Have a great weekend. Greeny on ESPN
0: Radio. Thanks for listening to Greeny the podcast. You can get more from Greeny live weekdays at Noon Eastern on ESPN Radio and on ESPN News. And don't miss Greeny on Get Up every morning at 8 Eastern on ESPN. Greeny the podcast.